Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. In today's cast chat, we'll review the online series Disruption, Action, Change. Lovely and wonderful gentlefolk, welcome back to the Sam Weavers podcast. As always, I am your host, Dr. Rosanna Moore. Yes, lovely listener, it is a cast chat day. So I am joined by both Dr. Blair Kerner and Dr. Adam Paul Cordell. Hello, my loves. How are you this fine day? <laughs> Hello, my dear. Hi, Rosie. How are you? Just dandy. So what are we doing for this cast chat? Well, we thought one of the most important things that we could do is talk about the Disruption Action Change series that was put together as a collaboration between the Eastman School of Music's Paul R. Judy Center for Innovation and Research and the University of Michigan's School of Music's Theatre and Dance Excel Lab. Disruption Action Change is a three-part online series where five performing arts changemakers discussed the role of disruption as an essential force in pursuit of a more just and equitable arts ecosystem. This series, aimed at art leaders, both students and young professionals, centered on the notion that upending existing organizational policy, bias, and protocols are vital to the future of the performing arts as we know it. There were a bunch of guests that we will get to and talk about during this, but they joined virtually each week for in-depth discussions and a Q&A featuring audience questions. Unfortunately, you cannot uh, listen to the series unless you were registered for it, but this was all followed up with a podcast episode produced by the Classically Black Podcast, which we thoroughly recommend that you go and listen to as it's a brilliant wrap-up of the entirety of these sessions. So without further ado, I am going to pass you on to Adam to talk about the goal of this episode. Yeah, so our purpose for this particular episode is to amplify the points that were made in the DAC conversations, distilling some of the themes that emerged and encouraging um, ourselves and our listeners to move these conversations forward. So one of the things that I'm going to uh, actually ask Blair to step in and do is to, to talk to us a little bit about some of the themes that we uh, observed in our attendance of these events. Absolutely. So we're going to break this down into disruption, action, and change themes. So we have three themes we're going to discuss today. The first one, disruption, is a concept of emphasizing what it means to be human and how the arts has a role in this followed by action, which is specifically focused on what institutions' actions can be um, utilized and focused on to reshape and provide space and access for individuals, and then followed up with change. And this specifically is actually more self-reflective. Lessons that we learned, things that we can change as individuals to kind of be more mindful in this space. So I'm gonna kick us off with disruption. And one of the things that stood out to me was Dr. Kyler, who is a um, professor of voice as well as a research in the opera field. And he kept coming back to this concept of what does it mean to be human? And to me, that just really stood out because he kept emphasizing that ADEI, accessibility, diversity, equity, and inclusion is not political because it's not political to treat other humans with humanity, right? So it's a core of our society to treat individuals with respect and understand where they're coming from, et cetera. 
So he really kept emphasizing. Well, certainly it's supposed to it's be. It's supposed to be, right? So like, let's think about that. So th- this concept that ADEI is starting to become a political thought is actually going against that grain. And we'll get to that a little bit and dive into it. But he even then took a step forward even more. And he's talking about this concept that the point of the arts is to highlight people's stories, experiences, emotions, to give them an outlet to express themselves. So what's a more perfect space to be inclusive, to demonstrate the variety of insights and perspectives that exist out there than the arts? And yet the arts, particularly you know, in the music field, is very backwards thinking and kind of stuck in its tradition, particularly classical, that is. And so we want to like kind of expand that bubble a little bit and really think about this actually might be the perfect space to be more inclusive and to be more focused on diversity initiatives. Now, on the flip side, and I, I'm going to open this up kind of for a conversation with the other two as well. Um, on the flip side, why people might think that ADEI is becoming political is a concept of institutional racism, right? There are policies in place that have been favoring certain individuals over others, and they exist in an assortment of institutions. And that's why when we think about tackling these, we talk about tackling these policies, and therefore the concept of political ideas come in. But at the stem, at the core, it's not a political concept. It's just we have to utilize policies in order to help make a bigger systemic change. But there's also other ways that we can get involved and be more inclusive outside of just policies themselves. And that's this kind of dualism between this ADEI is not a political thought or concept, but to help you know move things forward and make a bigger impact. And this is where we're going into number two, eventually action in institutions. We need to be you know breaking up these policies that exist that might cause problems. So I just want to open up and kind of your thoughts around this, particularly around you know, what it means to be human and using art as a human expression and being more inclusive in this space. I think that it's really interesting, this idea of ADEI as being non-political, uh, because one of the things that has come up recently is actually the addition of the letter B at the end of this, belonging. And I think one of the concerns that a lot of people have around ADEI and and the way that it has become um, thought of as a zero-sum game is that it uh, essentially others other people, right? It, it, it identifies and, and contrasts who is receiving benefits and who is being prohibited from being able to receive benefits. And I think one of the things that was really refreshing about this idea of, of centering human narratives in our art um, is that it gets us back to the idea of humanity, right? And of the fact that we are all um, beneficiaries in understanding one another's perspectives. So I think that it's really um, compelling this idea of changing our perspective of ADEI from a us versus them to a more all of our perspectives together bring a rich and, and um, multifaceted understanding of our world. Yeah, and just to talk about politicizing things in general, I mean, we just have to look at the past year and the pandemic and the fact that people turned a public health crisis, an international public health crisis, into something political, which is just insane to me. And it's also the same at looking at ADEI. It's sort of, this is not a political issue. This is, it shouldn't be politicized, just to go back to the title of this be human, be a nice person. That's that's kind of the whole 
whole point of being alive is to sort of be a good person and be good to your fellow man. Enjoy the art that is created because it comes from somewhere and it comes from someone's important. Yeah. This concept of disruption really is disrupting our expectations of what has been quote unquote normal, disrupting our traditions, specifically in the classical music, um, and disrupting what we kind of identify as our own experiences and understand that there's multiple other types of experiences out there. And that, you know, we might need to take action and we'll uh, lead into this now um, to, to active steps to change this and to be a little bit more proactive in these, in these mindsets. So I'm going to leave that off to the second part, which is action specifically around institutions. So Adam, if you could take that over. Yeah. The interesting thing about um, defining institutions is that there are many different institutions that overlap in many different ways. And um, I think it was really compelling. Um, Joelle Thompson, in the second part of the series, really spoke to American music just broadly as an institution. And I think that this is something that often gets overlooked in um, these sorts of discussions is because we don't actually, um, uh, I'm no photographer, but zoom out, I think is the right <laughs> kind of idea, um, far enough to really kind of see how some of these systems are playing just more broadly than just at the educational or um, performing arts organization level. So one of the things that Joel um, really spoke to was the idea that American classical music, uh, and he referenced um, Antonin Dvorak and Dvorak's explorations of black music and indigenous music, but um, Joel really kind of outlined that American classical musics, when you really sit down and think about what is inherently American, is founded on the idea of black spirituals and blues mm -hmm. and jazz and soul and indigenous musics. And um, this is something that in our traditionally uh, European-centric understanding of music has been vastly overlooked. And one mm -hmm. of the things that um, they spoke to is the idea that, you know, at the educational level, the curriculum really conditions us as students and then later as professionals to understand white composers as the canonical basis for classical music. And the thing that uh, he and Garrett McQueen were speaking to is that we need to reposition Black music traditions as a structural element of our music. Mm -hmm. And so Joel left uh, with a particularly interesting point of saying that, um, you know, in the educational system, uh, the majority of teachers are women, and yet the patriarchy continues to be upheld. And he used that an analogy to kind of to demonstrate how we have become complicit um, and, mm -hmm. and compliant with these systems of oppression, right? This is what we are trained to believe is valuable or uh, a word that I, I have really come to despise in the past year, quality. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the way that people value um, quality is often really um, just mistakenly directed toward uh, upholding these types of systems. Well, just talk about this and bringing this into, as you mentioned, curriculum and other, just providing that space um, is this is, you know, 100% valuable, 100% something that we should be taking steps towards, but it isn't an automatic, like, answer, right? Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that, you know, that the Classically Black podcast was saying is reflecting on, oh, absolutely bring this stuff in, you know, teach about it and so forth. But then there's the flip side of which is the appropriation, right? Mm -hmm. And this is something we haven't established yet. Like we haven't even figured out, had the conversation as yes, there's the educational component, but 
if it's a white person spirit singing a spiritual, right? Like, is that mm-hmm. all right? Like, and we haven't even had that conversation yet, mm-hmm. the, the space for that conversation yet. So it's something that we're still having to digest, but we need to at least address that and think about it and bring it in so that we know as we move forward, things that are going to be appropriate as we continue our education and changing and, and active activizing this space. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's really interesting too, that idea. So I, I remember, you know, one of the, the major conversations that that I had in one of my classes in uh, my doctoral degree was WC and uh, appropriation of gamelan and Indonesian music in his music, right? And, you know, there was no clear settled idea over what is appropriate and what is not. But I think um, one of the things that I found compelling, and, and both Joel and Garrett spoke to this in their lecture, is the idea that capitalism actually intersects with this deeply as well, right? Mm-hmm. Who is benefiting from this, right? If a white composer is incorporating um, spirituals into their music, then that is potentially a little more problematic or or the example that you bring up of a, a white performer singing spirituals that's potentially problematic depending on who stands to benefit from this mm-hmm. right are we centering black narratives in singing these spirituals and are we you know are we doing the work to speak about this and to put this in program notes in a way that audiences understand that this is mm-hmm. um, not this performer's experience, right? right? But this performer is speaking to yeah. others' experience. Uh, so the the piece that comes to mind with regards to that is Michael Tippett's Child of Our Time, which is a, a huge secular oratorio uh, by a British white composer. But the solos by the wonderful soloists at the front are all based on African-American spirituals. And it's I think it's a beautiful piece of music, but it is also appropriation. I I don't know enough of the history to know why he chose to use these spirituals, but that is kind of kind of an issue. That are we shining a light onto this um, because it's good music, or is it? Oh, that's good. I'm going to take it now. Yoink! And um, again, just to jump in, one thing that this is bringing me back to is something that wasn't uh, brought up during during these sessions, but actually the uh, video that went particularly viral around September this year, Adam Neely's um, music theory and white supremacy, sort of talking about the differences between classical musics and different classical music theories. And the fact that we, uh, I can't remember what he calls it off the top of his head, saying instead of calling all of music theory, music theory, call it the performance practices of white men from the 18th Mm. century. Which is what it is. Well, and I think too the the other thing that's that's really interesting about a lot of this is um, you know kind of uh, thinking about the um, role that capitalism plays, for instance. Um, so I think the thing that both of you are are speaking to that I think is really compelling about all of this is the idea that w- we can think about appropriation as being a question of intent and a question of profitability. Right. One of the things that's really important here as we're considering reshaping institutions for space and access is to be certain that we are not only upholding the musics of white composers or um, upholding white ensembles and white performers in performing these musics, but that we are also making space for um, black narratives and uh, through both the composers and through the performers. So I think one of the things that uh, I just want to leave us off with, at least in in this part of the conversation, is that uh, Joelle, 
really left us in the second lecture by asking questions, why is European music central to your lived experience? And if it is not, why are institutions leaving your lived experience out? I think that these are the questions that we need to be taking forward as we are considering the programming that we're doing, or we are considering the audiences that we're trying to bring in, the donors that we are trying to appeal to, because that is how we are going to find and, and to establish a more equitable future. On that note, uh, I want to turn this over to Rosie to talk a little bit about um, some of the change components, the lessons that um, we have learned for ourselves, um, broadly speaking, um, both for us as the three of us, but also for our field more broadly. So absolutely. My portion of this podcast today is to talk about change. And firstly, we are recognizing that we are three white musicians. And so there are lessons that we need to learn for ourselves. And we need to learn, especially as we all work at education institutions, we have to train ourselves in this language that can be ever-changing and what is appropriate and when so that we are supporting every single student, every single colleague, every single potential audience member even, just to make sure that everyone is made to feel comfortable uh, within our art form. So one of the things that Margaret Leoy said, and she was the uh, only white person to be included uh, in this uh, series as the head of Chamber Music America, is that she was talking about when you need to be in front of the crowd and when you need to go, okay, you need to step back and you need to let other people talk about things. And I think that is something that is very important for all of us to take away, especially if we are coming from a place of white privilege of going, okay, you, you've had your thing. You now need to step back and let other people talk about this, other, to let other people take charge. And that can be really, really difficult. Especially because she said, um, you know, step forward when you're under fire. Mm -hmm. Right. Meaning when there's exactly. fire on the organization or the concept or coming from the donors or whatever that you with your white privilege can step forward and basically be a protector. And then when the light yeah. needs to be shined with the voices and perspectives is when you need to take a step back and let their lights shine. And that is the really interesting thing. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it is it is difficult because you see this with all sorts of uh, organizations. When something goes well, everyone always wants to go, hello, look at our institution. When things go badly, we've seen a lot of institutions kind of muddle their feet and put their heads in the sand, which is, which is not okay. And that is something that needs to change as we start to evolve and grow with all of this. So let's talk about some of this language. Uh, one of the things that was mentioned was equality versus equity. And just to give you the, the difference in dictionary definitions, equality is a state of being equal, especially in status, rights, and opportunities, whereas equity is the quality of being fair and impartial. So making sure that you are being the correct person in this. Uh, um, Gareth McQueen also mentioned being an ally versus an accomplice. Being an ally is a passive force. It's, it's very easy for people to say, yes, I am an ally for this, but I'm not going to go to the Black Lives Matter marches or X, Y, Z. Whereas being an accomplice is a more active thing to talk about. It means that you're actually going to be there standing by these people. And that is so 
important. And I must sort of say, these people, can, this can be anything. Obviously, we're talking about disruption, action, change at the moment. But anyone who is in a position where they need support, they want an accomplice rather than an ally. And I think that's mm-hmm. something that you two mm-hmm. um, would agree with. One of the things that like uh, comes to mind here is um, there's a really interesting image with the equality versus equity, which really helps me to digest this, which is three individuals of different height standing at a fence trying to watch a ball game. And right. So, and like the one who's tall enough to see over the fence has no problem seeing. And with the equality, everyone gets boxes to hop them up so that, that they can see, but all the boxes are equal. So we still have the same issues, but maybe now two of the people can see, but there's still a third one who's the shortest mm-hmm. that can't. But equity is giving them the all different size boxes so that all of them can see and have you know action and, and participation in what's going across there's another image which is actually then making the fence actually like see through which is removing a barrier but that's that's outside of that i mean that would make it easier <laughs> but the exactly that like mindset really helps me understand because sometimes it just gets so blurred together mm-hmm. and one of the other things too which i found uh, another language thing that just like blew my mind because it's just something i haven't even considered based on my own privileged perspective was when dr Collier said the global majority versus calling a group of people the minority. Because what Mm -hmm. we call minority, Black, uh, Indigenous people of color, so BIPOC, is the global majority. Across the world, whites are not the majority. It just happens to be in a particular culture. And it was just mine, like, perspective in that was just amazing. And I really like that concept, just be like, oh, rather than calling them a minority, we can, first of all, preferring to call them BIPOC. Um, That's their their preference ones. Okay, got that. And then also keep in perspective that they are actually the global majority. Yeah, and just talking about that language in general, this is something that just came up in a discussion between the three of us last week is is BIPOC the uh, the acronym to use throughout the world because actually in the UK we use BAME uh, so B-A-M-E which is um, refers to Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic which when we discuss that is uh, perhaps not something to bring up in America to refer to someone mm-hmm. as ethnic. So language is it's, important. <laughs> it's really interesting how language is important. It's also important to see how language really does change even in two English speaking countries. It's we're seeing what these differences are and how they are having an effect on society as a whole, but obviously within the arts institutions. I think it's wonderful that we are focusing in on this and we're starting to learn lessons and we're starting to make changes. But the real test is going to be if all of this stuff is still going to be there in five years time, 10 years time, 20 years time to make sure we're actually laying the foundations. If you walk away from this podcast and you're a classroom musician, the thing that I would say to keep in mind as you move forward, in addition to using the word BIPOC more accurately, is also to understand the problems, the word outreach. Mm-hmm. And this was brought up with Melissa by Fifth yes. House. And we talk about elitism and that, that the word outreach she said is, you know, you take out the middle, it says, ouch, was because of this concept yep. that we are coming in and instilling our views into a specific section of a, you know, a community, a school, a hospital, or just going to a local park and saying, look at all the wonderful things we're bringing to you. Okay, bye. 
versus community engagement is the actual appropriate mindset and language to be utilizing because it should be a community that goes back and forth. It should be a two-way street and building that, you know, rapport. But I, as a, you know, career advisor have spoke multiple times and reading, you know, philosophy statements or reading cover letters. I'm like, heads up, this is something you have to be considerate of because in the past year, this has actually been brought up. And to the point where the Classically Black podcast, they even said that this, this concept, which is brought up in the DAC diversity equity change was new to them even. And like, I like, what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so like, this is new, but you have to be mindful of it because there are some people who are very much 100% in this bucket and know of it. And if they see that you're using outdated language, it shows that you're not quite staying up to um, par when it comes to being inclusive. And, and this is a section that you really want to be mindful of. So heads up, continue using community engagement, but also think about what it means to be engaged in the community. Yeah. And I think also Absolutely. the underlying point with all of this too is, is the idea of um, active versus passive, right? Mm -hmm. I think in a lot of ways, what both of you are speaking to is the idea that um, we need to understand this as an ongoing conversation that needs to continue to happen, that it can't be just yes. a um, a response to trauma, a flash in but it needs to actually be an ongoing um, effort on all of our parts to ensure that we are being um, actively accomplices and not passively allies. So I think, you know, um, I, I want to make sure uh, also, because uh, we were talking around Margaret Leoy's quote, but I want to make sure that I say what the actual quote was, because I think it was really compelling. Um, she said, if you're an ally and the light is shining on you, you step aside. If you're under fire, you step in front. And I think the thing that's really important about this is that it, it positions privilege as a shield, right? Um, and that is yes. essentially um, we who experience privileges need to use our privileges to support and, and, and uphold the narratives and experiences of those who do not experience the same privileges. There is a beautiful line that we have in our notes here that really does exemplify this is during the BLM protests this summer, there were white individuals who formed a line between black protesters and the police. So it was using our privilege. And I think that's an incredibly powerful comparison to make with this. So we have come to the end of our discussions here. And honestly, we could sit and talk about the DAC um, miniseries all day. As I said, unfortunately, unless you registered uh, to be part of uh, the series, you do you won't have access to some of the things. However, people who were presenting at this were Ashley Gordon, obviously one of our previous guests from Castle of Our Skins, and Margaret Leoy from Chamber Music America, Garrett McQueen and Joel Thompson, and finally, Antonio C. Kyler. Even though you won't be able to watch the sessions, you can read their blog posts, which are available on the Eastman website, which we will put uh, the link to down below. However, you can listen to the Classically Black podcast. So Classically Black are made up of two Eastman alums. We're always proud when we have Eastman alums on here, uh, which is Katie Brown and Lainey Harris. You can check out their podcast. And uh, this came out on April 5th, but we do encourage you to listen to all their other episodes as well because they, they just have a great time chatting. It's a really nice chatty podcast, um, but it also covers some really, really important views. Now, as this is a cast chat, 
This also means that we are coming up to the last section of our first season. Oh my heavens, we've done an entire season of this. How did this happen? So in June and July, what you have to look forward to is the harpist Aira Lynn Jones, who was my former teacher in the UK and a gosh darn delight. Iketut Gede Aznawa, who is a professor and performer of gamelan music. Miguel de la Guia, who is a composer. And finally, finishing with the founders of the Lake George Music Festival. We really hope that you enjoyed our discussion today and we hope to hear from you all soon. Thank you.